Well, welcome back, everyone, to Pillar of Truth. Today, we will continue our discussion about loving our enemies. You can find previous messages in this series, God's Love is the Golden Rule, at PillarofTruthRadio.com. Now, have you ever wondered what God's will was for your life? I think we've all asked that question in one way or another, at one time or another. Well, the Bible teaches that His will, among other things, is for you to love your enemies. Obviously, He wants you to love everyone, but we find it hardest to obey this command when it comes to our enemies. A lot of times we think of extreme examples when we think about enemies, like war. So who is my enemy? Those who, on account of Jesus, hate you. Notice I didn't say those who hate you, but rather those who on account of Jesus hate you. That means that if your life clearly proclaims Jesus, clearly honors God and glorifies him, persecution will come. People will hate you. Your next question might be then, if they hate me, especially if it's because of Christ, why would I show them love? Well, it's because we know our God. Our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. Our God is powerful and good. And we can love our enemies because that is the God we serve. And that God asks you to love that person who hates him and is taking that hatred out on you. Now the question becomes, how do I love my enemies? In today's message, you're going to hear that Jesus teaches us to love them, to do good to them, to bless them, and to pray for them. Loving, doing good, and blessing are all public ways to love your enemies, while praying for them is a very private way to love them. Now let's listen in as Travis explains... And at the end, he's going to give you some very practical tips about how, how to love your enemies. Luke 6, 27. Let's start by reading just a few verses here of this main section from verse 27 to 30. But I say to you who hear, Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray For those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Let's clarify what Jesus means by our enemies. Who are they really? Who are we talking about here? And that's the second question uh, for this morning for our outline. Simply, who are our enemies? Who are they? Verses 27 and 28, Jesus identifies them with the word enemies. And then as going inside, he talks about those who hate us, those who curse us, those who abuse or revile us. So he talks about a moniker, a name for them, enemies. But then the rest of the description, the other three are all actions, all what they do. That's the description. So is this all enemies? Is it Enemies of every kind. Does this refer to social political enemies? Does it refer to personal enemies or religious enemies? What about enemies of the land we live in? Does this prohibit Christians from going to war? Who are these people we're supposed to love? The word enemies here is ekthrus. In the singular ekthros, it has the, the root meaning of hostility. One who acts with hostility toward you is one who is oriented toward you as an enemy. You say, but I didn't do anything to deserve being an enemy, therefore that person's not an enemy. No, if that person is acting in an enemy-like way, it's an enemy, okay? So none of this, none of this, uh, you know, crazy speech from our politicians that doesn't want to call enemies enemies, they're enemies, okay? Let's, Let's just call it what it is. If they're acting with hostility toward our country, that's an enemy, okay? 
Jesus uses a verbal form in the second description. He identifies them not just as enemies, those who act with hostility towards you, but those who have hostility in their hearts. That is, those who hate you. This provides a peek into their heart motives. So an enemy is someone who is internally oriented by hatred. This person then, because of that hatred, subjects you to hostility, to antagonism, or outright aggression. Could be verbal form, or as in the second description, it could be a verbal form, it could be nonverbal, could be political, legal, could be organizational, maybe open, outright hatred, parent for everybody to see, or it could be more subtle, insidious, hidden, conniving kind of hatred, like the politicking that goes on in organizations. Jesus also identifies our enemies in verse 28, not just as having thoughts of hatred, but those who act out in hatred in what they say and what they do. They are those who curse you, those who abuse you, mistreat you. They, they may be even, as, as we read in verses 29 to 30, they may even strike you. They may even take away your coat. They might take away your goods. And it's at this point, we know who they are. Their internal attitudes manifest themselves in outward behavior out of the overflow of the heart, right? All the actions come. The mouth speaks. The action comes. Their animosity toward us cannot remain hidden forever. Think back to the 9-11 terrorists. They had lived in our country before the attacks. And there were people who no doubt met them prior to the attacks as they're, you know, can't speak in English, but they're learning how to fly airplanes and things like that. So they're in the airplane flying class. They just want to know how to take off, not know how to land. But people met them, had coffee with them, had lunch with them, whatever. And perhaps the Americans who interacted with those, pre, those uh, pre-attack, 9-11 attack terrorists, perhaps they found them to be friendly people, rather innocuous, innocuous, maybe even charming to some extent. But before the attacks... Before they had exhibited hostility on the outside, were they still enemies of the United States and its citizens? Better believe they were. The disposition of their hearts was oriented toward Americans in an attitude of hatred. Did they do nice things for their neighbors? I would assume so. Maybe even helped the old lady take out the trash one day as they're on their way to the flight school. Whatever the case. But all those acts of good that they were doing, they're doing with a motive and a desire to eventually destroy these people. In, the time, in time, they prove that hatred by flying airplanes into buildings, causing great destruction, killing thousands, and that revealed them without any doubt as enemies. So again, here we want to ask, and this is, I'm, I'm, I'm being intentional on getting to your heart by asking you about these terrorists, okay? Who are we talking about here? talking about all Muslims? Let's take it out of the Muslim thing and, and terrorist thing and ask this. Are, are we talking about our political opponents? Ones who didn't vote the way we thought they should vote? Are they all those who accept and embrace and actively pursue sinful lifestyles? Are those our enemies? Who are they? I want you to look back in context. We need to interpret all things in context, right? Look back in context to verse 22. And we're going to interpret this Question, who are our enemies in its context? Jesus said there to His disciples. Remember, He's ascribing a state of blessedness to those who are persecuted. He says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil. Get this. 
Why? On account of the Son of Man. Okay, so that's language that seems very strikingly similar to what we're reading in verse 27 and 28, right? Who are enemies? They're those who, on account of the Son of Man, hate you, exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name as evil. They are those who marginalize, ostracize, slander, undermine, attack, or persecute. They are those who, on account of the Son of Man, punch you in the face, take your clothing, take your goods and your properties. Now, could those people be religious enemies, enemies of the Son of Man, because they're enslaved to false religion like Islam, like terrorists who want to imprison us or cut off our heads? Sure. But how often do you meet one of those in your day-to-day life? Could these people be the cultural progressives? Enemies of the Son of Man because they love their sin and they hate anybody who stands in their way, perhaps. That's a bit closer to home, isn't it? That's on the horizon. In fact, it's actually right now in our schools. Social progressives, secular elites, some of them even self-proclaimed haters of Christians. Some of them advocating for abortion. They see Christianity as an impediment, as a, as a throwback to ancient foolish days, unenlightened times. Christianity is an obstacle. It's something to free your mind from. Some of them are angry feminists. They hate Christianity because they believe it promotes male patriarchy and domestic abuse. Increasing number of Americans see Christianity as an obstacle to their idea of individualism. They believe that's what is guaranteed to them in the Constitution of the United States, the right to life, liberty, and the what? The pursuit of happiness. Whatever makes me happy, don't get in my way. So they want all Christians silenced so they can pursue all manner of evil. Sexual impurities, perverted behaviors, fornication, easy, no-fault divorces, LGBTQ, whatever initials, lifestyles, transgenderism, homosexuality, transvestitism. Nothing is withheld. They don't want anything to be held back from them. And there's a columnist, op-ed writer for the New York Times named Frank Bruni. He published a recent article, The Best or the Worst and Best Places to Be Gay in America. He quotes one woman in the article, a lesbian from Tyler, Texas, who testified. She said, I came out at 60 and I was told I could no longer hold any positions of leadership in my church. I am or was a Southern Baptist. In an earlier article, 2015, Bruni wrote, uh, it's called Bigotry, the Bible, and Lessons of Indiana. Bruni signaled the need to change that kind of attitude that would marginalize and kick out a woman like that out of a Southern Baptist church. He cited one source for his article, a man named Mitchell Gold, who is a gay philanthropist who founded an advocacy group for LGBT people. Mr. Gold told Mr. Bruni, quote, church leaders must be made to take homosexuality off the sin list, end quote. Is it possible that in an effort to make us take homosexuality off the sin list that we will have to forfeit property, pay fines, or something worse? Will we be subject to hate crime laws which try to make certain biblical passages or faithful interpretations of certain biblical passages off limits from the preaching, public preaching of the Bible? Could happen. Whatever we face, and listen carefully, whatever we face, on account of the Son of Man, it's hostility and hatred of an enemy that kicks Jesus' commands into effect. The more hostile they are, 
the more it reminds us, oh yeah, go back to the guidebook. What does the guidebook say? Love your enemies. Love them. Regular, continual, persistent action. Loving, well-doing, blessing, and praying. And doing it from the heart. Doing it in public and in private, in our minds and thoughts, and also with our actions and our words. We're to love them, never to hate them. Never to hope for their demise. This is what the Good Samaritan Jesus story did for the man who was beaten and left to die. He saw before him an ethnic and cultural enemy, but a man who was in need. That's how he saw him. He saw him as a fellow human being in need. And he responded with active love, agape love, helping someone in need. This is what Paul commanded us to do. Romans 12.14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Again, this is a repetition of Jesus' command here. And the same thing over in 1 Timothy 2. We're to pray for those who would be or could be enemies. Particularly those enemies who have power and authority over us. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, that is, all kinds of people. Who, Paul? Well, for kings and all who are in high positions. Governors. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He's not saying pray that the government would make decisions that give us a peaceful life, even though we do pray for that. He's saying pray for those kings and all those who are in authority who are wicked and evil rulers so that we don't fight against them and uh, you know, form a coup and try to overthrow them, but rather in peace and godliness and quietness and dignity we pray because we know the God who put them in positions of authority. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people, that is all kinds of people, to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. John Stott cites John Chrysostom, a 4th century pastor, one of the early church's most powerful Bible expositors. This is the quote, Chrysostom saw this responsibility to pray for our enemies as the very highest summit of self-control. It's also the highest summit of love for our enemies. To pray. Whoever we come to identify as our enemies, the enemies of Christ, the Son of Man, doesn't really matter. As Christians, we're to love them. We're to love them most profoundly when we long for their salvation. Long for their salvation. Jesus prayed for those who crucified Him. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Now that we know what love is and who our enemies are, how in the world are we to do this? Really, frankly. How are we to do this? It's not in us. That's the first first, first thing. Yes, it's not in us. It's in, it's, it's in God. He placed it in us. And we can do it because He has placed His Holy Spirit within us. He's given us a new nature, a nature that can respond to the Holy Spirit. So third, final question, how do we love our enemies? How do we do this? How do we love them? First, we start off by remembering that at one time, you also were an enemy of God. And God loved you. Romans 5.10 says, why we were enemies of God. Same word, ekthroi. That's that word, ekthros, enemies. Even in that condition, God reconciled us to Himself through the death of Jesus Christ. That's love. We like it when it's expressed to us. Second, remember that you're eternally loved by God and you will never fall away. Jesus has ascribed the condition of blessedness to you because you possess the kingdom of heaven, verse 20. You're going to be satisfied and laugh one day, verse 21. You'll be rewarded, verse 23, and rewarded handsomely, verse 35. 
You're going to be numbered with the prophets of old. You're going to prove to be sons of God who demonstrate the mercy of their Father in heaven on earth. Look, armed with that knowledge, you can have confidence in the face of anyone who would orient themselves to you as an enemy, who treat you with hostility. Why? Because you're backed by God. Third thing, how do we practice this? Remember where you once came from. Remember that you will never fall away. God holds you. Thirdly, remember that this is a command, not a suggestion. (laughs) This is God's will for you. That you would demonstrate love even for your enemies. Even those who are enemies of the Son of Man. You love your friends too. Everyone in between. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser, okay? But love for enemies defines the outmost limits of those who might be defined as our neighbors. We even love God's enemies. And in so doing, we prove to be Christ's true disciples. There is no concern for man-pleasing here. No fear of man. Rather, in the fear of the Lord, with an eye to pleasing Him, we obey. We obey this command from our Lord. We reach out toward enemies, haters, revilers, abusers. We reach out to them with love. God always has your back. He will always take care of you, even if it doesn't go well, even if it results in more hostility. In fact, there's no fear at all under the protection of God. We don't play the victim as enemies come at us, but rather we take the offensive. We pursue... This is interesting. We don't retaliate in kind. We retaliate against them, but in love. We retaliate for them in love by doing good, blessing them, praying for them. It's impossible... As we said, it's impossible to hate or be embittered against those whom you love. Do good, bless, and pray. This kind of love this world has never seen. So how do we do this? Remembering we were once enemies, God loved us. Remembering we were eternally, were eternally loved by God, absolutely safe in His love. And also being mindful that this is a command from our Lord. A Lord we want to please. A Lord who gave Himself for us. Let me add some encouragement to this. Number four, you're gonna, how, do we, how do we do this and love our enemy? You're going to succeed in loving your enemies when you remember that God's blessing rests upon you when you suffer for the sake of the Son of Man. Peter wrote to a persecuted church suffering under the growing hostility of Rome and led by the a madman, Emperor Nero. Here's what he told them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Listen, if it gets, goes from bad to worse as it's doing in this country... Let's not be shocked. Let's not be shocked. That's what we are saying. Rejoice, though, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. <laughs> Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So good to hear. We shouldn't be surprised. We should expect it. And if we're clear about revealed truth, if we're clear proclaiming biblical doctrine, if our lives clearly reflect the righteousness of God in what we say and how we act, we rejoice when persecution comes. Why? Because they can see the difference in us. Peter says, the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. That's why they attack. Cause for rejoicing. Fifthly, I want to just get you started with some practical tips in loving your enemies. How do we do this? Let me give you three tips. Okay, three tips. Number Tip number one, commit to praying for them. Commit to praying for your enemies. Picture that enemy in your mind and set about to praying for them. Write down a prayer list. Keep them in your prayer list and pray for them. Start where Jesus ends by including the enemies in your prayer life. This is preemptive action on your part. And it's actually going to produce love within you for your enemies. It's impossible to hate those you regularly pray for. 
I love what John Stott wrote in Christian Counterculture, his book on the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, quote, If intercessory prayer is an expression of what love we have, it is a means to increase our love as well. It's impossible to pray for someone without loving him and impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. We must not, therefore, wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for him before, uh, uh, for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him, and we shall find our love break first into a bud, then into blossom. End quote. So pray preemptively for your enemies. Picture that person in your mind or those people in your mind. Bow before the Lord in prayer for them, for their good. God is going to produce within you that divine love for enemies. He'll cause the love He's planted within you by the Holy Spirit to bud, blossom, bear much fruit. Second tip, very much like the first, not only pray for them, but do good to your enemy. No matter how they treat you, no matter how they think of you, Practice doing good, kind things for them and your feelings will follow. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. Quote, The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering with whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we will, we will find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you'll find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you'll find yourself disliking him less. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. End quote. That's been my experience. Has it been yours? That when you pray for, when you do good to those you even may not know, maybe your enemies, maybe strangers, when you do that, it changes your heart disposition toward them. You imagine standing in heaven with them, praising God before His throne and seeing the remarkable work of grace that's happened in this person's life. Formerly a uh, contemptible person in your life, but no worse than you before a holy God. Ask God for an opportunity to show kindness to that person, then take it. You're soon going to find your heart softening. It will release you from the bondage to bitterness, the bondage to a desire to retaliate. You'll enter into glorious freedom of Jesus Christ and great power of love that overcomes even enemies. Can I give you a third tip? Share the gospel. If you love your enemies, share the gospel with them. God is holy. They are not. They're sinners and they stand condemned before His holy law. But God has been gracious to send Jesus Christ to show them love even while they're His enemies, that they might be saved, having all their sins taken away, all His wrath completely satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. By repentance and faith, they too can know Him as you do. Be reconciled. Wouldn't you like to see that for all your enemies? That they be transformed into immediate friends and brothers and sisters and fellow worshipers of Jesus Christ. Well, that's verses 27 28. Now we know who our enemies are, 
what loving them means, we've got to realize that loving our enemies doesn't always result in our singing kumbaya together, does it? Um, our love, our well-doing, our blessing, our praying for them doesn't necessarily result in their conversion, unbelievers falling down before us on their knees. Good sir, what must I do to be saved? Your love is so remarkable. Tell me more. You know, they don't do that all the time, right? Well, that's what our Lord tells us about next. As He helps us to anticipate the reaction of enemies, often to the outstretched arms of love. The outstretched hand of love, they bite it's sometimes very vicious. They don't exactly warm up to us. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you. From one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. And if you want to know what that means, and what it doesn't mean, come back next time and find out, okay? Yet another convicting and encouraging message. Friends, plan now to join us tomorrow as we continue this series called God's Love is the Golden Rule. Travis will be moving from our love for our enemies to their reaction to our love. If you've missed the first few messages on this topic, remember you can find this study and all of our broadcasts on our website, pillaroftruthradio.com. You can listen to or download this entire series for free, and please feel free to pass it along to a friend. If you find yourself struggling with any of the lessons we've been learning from God's Word or just have questions about our broadcast, we would love to help you. Contact us by email at letters at pillaroftruthradio.com. Plan to join us again tomorrow. Give us 30 minutes each day, and soon you'll be standing up and standing strong with all of us on Pillar of Truth. Mm-hmm.